This edition of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Fusion Conference, an invitation-only event for school and district leaders. Hello and welcome to an EdSurge On Air podcast extra. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here. Five years ago, a former high school principal named Brian Greenberg joined forces with an heir to the retail giant Gap to start a fund to help scale promising charter schools. This week, that group, Silicon Schools Fund, released a report reflecting on its efforts so far, which have supported 31 schools, 24 of them brand new, with a total of $50 million. The bad news? They admit there isn't yet enough hard evidence that personalized learning really works. The good news? There are plenty of positive signs, both when measuring students across standardized tests and when looking for signals of engagement. They suggest moving forward with what they call urgent patience. Ed Surge's CEO, Betsy Corcoran, sat down with Greenberg to talk about the report, along with his colleague, Katrin Wright. Here are some highlights from the conversation. This is Betsy Corcoran, and I'm CEO of Ed Surge, and I am really pleased this morning to be in conversation with two people who've thought about personalized learning and rolled up their sleeves and done something about personalized learning for a long time. Uh, Brian Greenberg, who is running Silicon Schools, and Katrin Wright, who is his right-hand person, I think, uh, running Silicon Schools. Brian, Katrin, take a minute, introduce yourselves, and remind us about the background that you brought into personalized learning and Silicon Schools. Hi, Betsy. Good to see you and hear you. I'm Katrin Wright. I have been working with Silicon Schools since 2012, but really got bought a bit by the bug of personalized learning in 2008 or so, when Rocket Chip was just beginning and doing work with the Bridge Band Group, which does nonprofit consulting. And since then, I've been intrigued by the promise and also aware of the challenges of personalized learning. Excellent, because we're going to talk about both. We want to be honest and transparent about both because we do think this is an incredibly exciting time in education and we think it often gets overhyped and we want to try to be on the right side of history in sharing the things that excite us as well as our concerns. I'm Brian. I'm one of the co-founders of Silicon Schools. We've been at this for five years. So um, this report that we just released today is in many ways our chance to pause and look back on sort of all we've learned in five years of working on personalized learning. My background is really in the trenches. I was a classroom teacher uh, in a big district setting. I helped found a small school within a big district setting. I've worked in the charter sector for much of my career um, as a founding principal of a high-performing school in the Bay Area as a chief academic officer and really came to start Silicon Schools along with John Fisher under the belief that everything we had done up until now was amazing. And we were really proving that you could get any kid into college and have kids succeed but boy, was it taking every drop of energy that we had. And I started to worry about the ability to scale the high-performing charters to really reach every kid in America. And at this time, technology was coming on the scene in the form of Chromebooks that were going to sort of be bringing the price of computers close to zero, internet access, thanks to people like you know Education Superhighway and others, um, and then really interesting software that was starting to change things. But my feeling was the software and the tech was not going to be a silver bullet. It was not going to sort of instantly change classrooms on their own. I thought it was going to be really powerful educators who got access to these new tools and were given permission to rethink some of the assumptions about the way we've always run school. And if we could do that and get the kids to care more, to feel more empowered, 
as well as make schools a little more efficient by getting kids more of what they need when they needed it, that would really drive our work. So in many ways, like the beliefs that we came to the table with were that you could redesign schools and that that could have a real positive impact on education. Um, and we also really thought that kids owning their own learning was going to be critical to their long-term success in life, in school. Um, I often think about the American education system as this giant canoe with 40 million kids in it. And sadly, too often, you have a handful of teachers with oars or paddles, you know, breaking their back, trying to move you just inches down the river. And I think the promise of personalized learning is what if we could give every kid a paddle and what if they could all start caring? caring about rowing as much as we do. Um, and I think that's sort of a lot of what's driving our interest in this work, as well as, frankly, a focus on equity, making sure more kids who haven't gotten a great shot at education get a better shot. Um, and that's sort of why we entered into this work. Um, and to just give you the briefest of summary, we are a foundation. <laughs> in many ways, what we do is we raise money from a, a network of really um, thoughtful philanthropists. We pool that money, and then we go out and do what we call diligence, essentially interviewing, meeting, visiting schools, talking to incredible educators who want to start new schools or want to convert existing schools. Uh, and when we find folks that we really believe in, we give them large philanthropic gifts that last over a few-year period that let them either start a brand-new school as sort of one of their lead investors, the main people behind them, but then we also give a lot of technical assistance and spend a lot of time with them during those first few years. And if the school is terrific, we help them start a second school and then a third school. Um, and that's sort of how we do our work. The beauty of that is over the last five years, we've now built a portfolio that's 31 schools strong, 24 of which are brand new, didn't exist when we started the fund in 2011, um, and seven of which are conversions of existing schools. Within the portfolio, we have a real diversity of schools. We have some schools that are diverse by design. We have some schools that serve over 90% students who receive free and reduced lunch. And we have some schools who serve only 10 to 20% free and reduced lunch. So within the portfolio, we see quite a range of, of populations served across the Bay Area. We didn't want this to be something that only worked in schools that had high poverty rates or only worked in schools that were highly affluent. Right. Um, and then number two, personally, we are driven by this agenda of trying to make sure more kids, particularly kids who haven't had a good education, get a good education. So we're really, um, you know, about the fact that two-thirds to the three-quarters, depending on the year of these kids, would be under any typical qualification, you know, low-income, harder-to-serve kids who generally don't have a lot of good education outcomes if we don't open great schools in their neighborhoods. Right. Let's go back to kind of one of the key questions. Is personalized learning really a noun or is it a verb? And the reason that I ask you that question is because a lot of people seem to refer to personalized learning like it's a particular thing. What I took away from reading your report is that there are a lot of elements to it, but maybe we should be thinking of it more as a verb than as a specific thing. What, how, do you, how do you break that one apart? We would very much agree with you, Betsy. I think one of the risks that we see, first the word was blended learning, before that it was hybrid, now it's personalized. The minute it becomes a thing, the minute it becomes calcified, you have people who put up their picket signs on one side or the other. I'm pro this or I'm anti that. And you almost say the message like, it can't change anymore. And I was talking to my friend Sandy Spiker, who works at IDEO, who I think is really thoughtful. And she had this neat analogy around like the modern art movement. And the minute it became a thing, modern art, with a series of principles, there's a whole bunch of folks who said, I don't want that. That's what my uncle or 
dad did. I'm a modern artist, and then they have to create something new. So we tend to think about beliefs and practices that we think are important. You know, getting kids more of what they need when they need it. Redesigning schools so that the teacher is doing more time when they're doing highly effective instructional practices and doing a lot less of the stuff like grading papers or whole class lecture that in theory you could outsource to technology. So we think a lot about personalizing learning and we're not as interested in putting a definition on what PL is because we actually think it changes really rapidly. Um, I also am really worried about people trying to scale this too quickly. Um, you'd be amazed the number of people who come and visit our schools and say, oh, that's cool, let's go replicate it. And we say, well, hold on a second. Like, you know, the, the jury's still out. Like, we have to get a little more data. We have to see things. We want more people to come into the arena. We want more people to be curious and interested in this and trying to pilot and prototype in their settings. But we do not yet want school boards across America adopting resolutions saying every school in our district will be personalized by the year 2021. And by personalized, we need the following definition and politicians on a stump saying the same thing. We think this is more about empowering educators with some freedoms and ability to redesign their schools and kind of asking themselves, before I teach something, let me figure out who in the class knows it or doesn't know it, and then have the integrity to do something about that. And that's going to require schools that are structured a little differently, to think about using technology a little bit differently. But we meet people who talk about it like that, we're sort of our eyes light up and we feel like these are more the kind of folks we want to invest in versus people who say my model is a station rotation one-to-one -one computer using this software. what i heard you say was we don't want school boards adopting a resolution that says we are going to adopt personalized learning by the year 2020 right that's what you said it would be ironic if personalized learning was a monolithic I think if we believe that students need different things at different times, schools and communities and educators also need different things at different times. And so if I was a school board, I would start with some of the first principles and questions around why are all the students in this room getting all the same thing? Do they actually all need it? What would it look like in our community if we started to give students more ownership of their learning? And I think it is about the strategies you develop that um, are based in your community but build on others' learnings as opposed to taking someone's solution and putting it down in your community, which may have different needs and may have educators with different strengths. Do you have a concern that the rate of improvement that we see in kids' performance uh, is different from uh, between those kids who... Start, come into the system further behind and those kids who come from more affluent backgrounds. And so from the beginning, one of the things we've looked at is when you examine where students start the school year based on an assessment, um, how do the kids in the bottom quartile do, the top quartile do? I think that both quartiles, every student deserves to reach their full potential and any model that we think delivers on the promise of education has to help kids in all of those quartiles perform well. And thus far, when we look at our portfolio, sometimes the bottom quartile does even better than the top quartile, but all of them are making progress um, above and beyond, or at least the schools that are outliers, above and beyond an average year of growth, which we think is really promising. I'm going to ask a, a kind of a charged question. Do you ever get pushback from parents of kids in the 
upper quartiles who say, well, my kid is not getting as much out of this experience as other kids. And in fact, all you're doing is increasing the competition that they're going to face when they try to get into a great college. I think if you were to ask any parent in America, would you rather have a school system that knows your kid's age and therefore prescribes a predetermined curriculum based on their age, based on national averages, or one that says, let me get to know your kid and figure out where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. Let me give them more time on the things they need more time to practice on. And let me try to find whether they work better when I turn them loose independently or keep them closer to me. Hey, parent, you choose. They're going to pick the more personalized model. You know, I'm a parent myself. The things I love about my kids' schools, one area that's still challenging is sometimes I feel like they're still treating him as a fifth grader, still treating her as a second grader and not figuring out their strengths and weaknesses. If you're a typical school where you have 30 kids in a classroom and one teacher is trying to figure it out, it's just not fair to ask them to personalize for every kid. It doesn't work under the old model because a teacher can't make 30 different lesson plans. Under the new model where you say, well, hey, let's figure out who knows what. Let's try to do some flexible grouping. Let's have them working independently sometime. And then when they're not working independently, let's have the time with the teacher be more powerful, small group, hands-on. When people see personalized learning shown that way, they get very excited about it. It rarely is better than the minute you start it. But we have seen, particularly in schools, by the time they get to their second and third year, they can really show some pretty dramatically different results after they've worked through some of the kinks. Right. Another number that you mentioned in your report that I thought was pretty impactful was 20 to 40 percent. You said that what the studies are showing and what your experience is showing is that you shouldn't have kids sitting on their laptops and staring into a screen for more than 20 20 to 40% of the time in the day. Now that's pretty different from some of the models that we've seen in the past, right? We've seen models like Carpe Diem, where candidly, I think it's a whole lot closer to 80 to 90% of the day. Talk a little bit about what you've observed in your schools about the role of screen time versus non-screen time. Uh, I would say the one of the biggest takeaways, and we write about this in the paper, is that personalized learning should not be isolated learning. And that nobody wants to see, you know, the dawn of the day of the dead with kids staring at a screen with laptop, you know, with earplugs in for eight hours a day. I don't want that for my child. When we looked at some of the research out there and we cited this um, uh, survey that Paul Peterson and Michael Horn did that landed on something around 20 to 40 percent of the day, I think that was really talking about how much time kids should be setting their own goals and working more independently versus when they should be working socially. And we know this, if you look at the learning science research, like we are wired to learn socially. It doesn't mean we always need to be in a whole group because all you got to do is walk into a traditional school, anyone in Grand America, and survey every single kid by putting a video camera on them or watching what they're doing. And you tell me a school where there's 100% engagement, where all the kids are staring up every minute of every day. It's just not happening. So we're more interested in finding a blend where a kid sets a goal that's meaningful for them with some advice from their teacher, has some time to work independently. And as a result of that, the teacher and the school buy themselves smaller class sizes, more intimate learning, more hands-on small group instruction. And that mix is actually what really excites us versus just saying yes or no, online learning, versus, you know, traditional education. We just think that's the wrong argument to be having. Terrific. Let's talk about money. 
I know you like the hard questions, so here we go. Um, talk a little bit about how much funding you've been able to give the schools. And I'd like to differentiate between the Greenfield schools, schools that are starting from scratch, as you said, this 24 of your kind of 31 uh, cohort, and how much it costs for an existing school to try to make some of these changes. Because, uh, you know, most of the schools out there already exist. And um, I'm interested in both of those things. So I'll say that there's no one answer for everyone in the country on this question. I'll tell you how we've solved this problem, and I'm open to lots of other people having different answers. In California, to start a brand new school from scratch, eventually every school we fund has to break even. It has to spend as much as it brings in from the state on public dollars, because if not, they have these permanent philanthropic gaps that we think aren't sustainable and can't get to scale. But in the years that the schools are growing, because mostly schools open one grade at a time or two grades at a time, they are not able to hit their bottom line in year one with 100 kids. You still need a principal, even if that same principal is going to stay with you till you have 500 kids. So we think that all-in number of what it takes to raise to start a school is somewhere in the order of $1 to $2 million. If you're starting a new charter school, there's a federal program that gives you a half-million-dollar grant that most schools can win and, and get. So the gap is really somewhere between a half a million to a million and a half dollars. Um, I think anyone in the country who wants to do personalized learning, though, can get started. A lot of those costs are because that's what it takes to start a new school. In schools that are converting or flipping, as we call it, are often not that great in terms of hard costs. You can't do really good redesign of school and real strong move towards personalized learning with 5% of your grade. This is big change management work. And it's one of the things we talk about in this paper. People underestimate how hard it is to make really core changes to the way that schools work. So this is not like consumer tech where someone sees a new app, they download it at the kitchen table, they're up and running 15 minutes later, and you get 30 million users adopting it over the course of a year. And people often ask us that. Why can't you just take your best solutions and scale it everywhere? And I say, because humans are hard to change and systems are hard to change. In the same way, I don't think the American prison system is one algorithm away from solving its biggest problems. I don't think, you know, the software providers are going to find a solution that just radically change American schools. So the most important thing for school leaders and district leaders is to really think about who are the people in your district who are real instructional geniuses, who really think about what teaching and learning looks like? Who has credibility with the principals and the teachers? Which school leader is best positioned to lead their staff through some tricky, challenging waters? How could you create a system where people are applying for some of these funds within the district and earning some autonomy? And we're big believers in get a proof point of success within your local context. Do it small to start one pilot within one school that turns into one school-wide model in a few years, and then bring everybody in the district through that school and have people who are interested come and work in that school for a semester or a year. And let this thing scale up through a coalition of the willing versus thinking you can mandate this from the top down. Do you think this should be a movement driven by educators for educators, not imposed upon teachers and that's a fabulous point. Or I think the biggest barrier to this work spreading is not money, but mindshare. Mm -hmm. I think that if this is not one of your top priorities in the school year, it won't su succeed and thrive. And that's been the challenge we've seen in schools that try to convert their instructional model to personalized learning. It's a one of our takeaways from the past five years of watching lots of educators do this work 
is that we think the ideal mix across the day is not all in one or the other, but right, frankly, a mix of both kids getting to work at their like instructional level, what's right for them right now based on what they know, working at what would be like their developmental or age level or grade level. We don't think it has to be all or nothing. Brian, give me a couple of examples. Describe a couple of the schools, Kajin, um, uh, describe a couple of the schools that you guys have and how the approaches they're taking are different, are, are sort of keying off of these ideas that you're describing. An example, um, we have a, a, a sort of small micro school that's part of our portfolio called the Khan Lab School that Sal Khan helped found. And it's actually located on the same corporate campus as Khan Academy. It's a really interesting school for what you can do with you know a smaller number of kids, and frankly, kids who don't come in often with a lot of skill gaps. They've settled on a model that has every kid being assessed on their independence level, how well they work on their own versus how much oversight they need. And so they will group kids often by independence level more than by content level. So if you're going to turn a kid loose on a piece of software, it actually doesn't matter if Keatron is sitting next to me working on eighth grade math and I'm going slow working on fourth grade math because we're both really good independent learners. And vice versa, if I need to keep a closer eye on those kids, I might have three kids at the table who have wildly different ages but really need more personalized attention from the teacher. And so for a portion of their day, they're using independence level as their key sorting mechanism. Now, I know there's a principal out there rolling their eyes saying, how do I do that with a school with 3,000 kids? And the truthful answer is, I'm not sure I know. I think the bigger the school, the less boutique you can be, the more you need things to scale. I think part of the problem is that we have these master schedules that are frankly driven by these formulas that say all kids will get the same amount, number of minutes, all kids will have the same class sizes. And we're essentially building a system based on averages. And I think over time, we're going to need master scheduling software that allows for more variability. We're probably going to need to build in some flex periods, which I'm seeing more and more just regular schools think about doing. An hour a day where kids have some discretion about where they go and how they work um, because we're able to hold kids accountable for the work they do. Um, and that's a big difference. If you do use software, you can see the outcomes more quickly at times in these flex periods. Um, I, I think back to when I was in college, I went and spent a semester working on a farm, and my job was literally to pick watermelons. And I got there, and they said to me, okay, go start picking. And I said, okay, great. Like, you know, how many rows am I responsible for? They said, oh, we, we pick till noon, and then we take a break. I said, okay, and how many rows do I need to do before noon? And they said, oh, we, we pick till noon, and then we take a break. Oh, I get it. I'm going to pick really slowly because I'm a lazy <laughs> guy, right? And if they had just said to me, well, everybody needs to get through three rows, but if you do it in two hours, you can take a longer break, or if you do it in four hours, you're going to miss your break, I would have picked faster. And I think our old school model is based on we pick till noon and we take a break. And the idea here is have kids set a target. And once they hit that target, have them set a more challenging target. Um, and it takes time and energy to get this right. So the schools that we're most excited about doing goal setting are dedicating, you know, 10 minutes a week for one-on-one -on -one time with each teacher, with each kid to set that goal. Now, you could say, well, that's a lot of time across a whole class of kids. But I would argue if you're going to spend five hours a week with kids working independently, don't you want to invest 10 minutes of that time to figure out how that can be the most effective five hours? And then, frankly, if kids can evaluate their work and go meta and figure out where they're strong and where they're weak, we think those are the kind of skills that will actually be just as important as the content that they master. Katrin had mentioned that mindset is a big challenge. Um, 
What else, as you think about the next five years of your schools and of schools more broadly, what else keeps you up at night? I think um, the thing that we worry a lot about is ongoing improvement and the execution of ideas. Um, We want to have ambitious and innovative ideas, and we want to hold a really high-quality bar for how they're implemented. We think you can do that well by using prototyping, something that folks in Silicon Valley use a lot. Um, How do you test out an idea for one day with 25 kids, as opposed to rolling out an idea with all of sixth grade for a whole year? Um, Schools need to build their muscles around continuous improvement. Basically, how do we all get better at getting better? That's the only way we're going to develop great ideas into great execution. And I think for us, a lot of the work over the next five years is about getting better at getting better. Yes. And really investing in the change management process, because this is a human person driven solution and system. You had a phrase in your report, urgent practice. I think that's what you just described, right? Yeah, so one of the things that we talk about as the overarching theme for this work is urgent patience. And, um, you know, when you read the report, you'll see we started with the story of actually Keetran's son, who was born just as we launched Silicon Schools five years ago. And over the last five years, he's experienced everything that, you know, uh, kids get into preschool and really become a full human being. And now he's starting kindergarten. Over the next five years, we still, we say to everyone, give us some time. We need to figure all this out. But his elementary school experience will basically be concluded by the time we finish this next fund five years from now. So how do we avoid the desire to quickly scale these ideas that might be promising all across America for the kids who need it? Well, that would be a huge mistake. Too um, on our heels and too slow and having whole groups of kids miss out on the potential to have an improved education. Um, I don't have the answer. But we think this stance of Urgency combined with patience is probably the right stance for personalized learning right now. Feeling a sense of the old model is not good enough, and a lot of us acknowledge that. I don't think there's many American teachers who, when you talk to, say, yeah, I'm really happy with age-based grouping and class sizes of 25 and direct instruction. They're just not. They, they got teachers more than anyone know how hard the system is for them. It's just so grueling to be a teacher under these models and really reach every kid in their class. Um, and they're the first one to tell you, like, please don't come in and tell me there's this magic new thing called personalized learning that will save my school. Or I'm going to throw you out of my classroom. So how do we have more people get inspired, start, and then find that first step? Great. So urgent patience uh, is kind of one of the themes. Um, Brian and Katrin, we could talk for a really long time, and there are a lot of very, very interesting points that are in your paper. Really encourage people to take a look at it and dive into it. Uh, And we hope that you will come back and talk about some of these experiments more. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Tim, thank you for all the work that EdSurge is doing to sort of tell the story, both from what's exciting and, frankly, where it's overhyped. I think that that modulation of uh, excitement versus hype is key, and um, you guys do a really good job of it, so thank you. Thank you. 